This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, March 29th, 2023 edition. And on the calendar, we are moving through week 13 of the year. And guess what? The first quarter concludes on Friday. And it was a, it was a busy one, a lot of interesting news events and a lot of market fluctuations, a very choppy environment, and kind of what I had been expecting for the first half of this year. And uh, the first quarter lived up to the bill. We'll see if the second quarter does the same. But, you know, it's a time of economic change, of market change, of geopolitical change. And we're here. I am here. I'm Justin Klein. I'm here to answer your finance and investment questions, which I'm sure you have a lot of with the backdrop that you see. We all see what's happening, the winds shifting uh, in geopolitics, in the economy, and that ultimately affects companies and valuations and interest rates and uh, different asset classes. And, and that's always been true, but in this hyper-politicalized environment and really you know, that we have talked about this before, the fourth turning, right? Things are changing and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. A lot of people look at that as a bad thing. I look at it as a good thing that we're kind of cleaning out the, the problems and, you know, we're going to move on eventually to a better, brighter days. But in the meantime, that does bring challenges as we go through these, the, the, this changing time. Uh, and we'll come out of this in the spring uh, in you know maybe a decade or so but this next decade is going to be a doozy it's going to be filled with pitfalls it's going to be filled with opportunities and if you are using the same playbook as before you're you're probably going to struggle right you're if you're you're chasing the big large cap growth stocks that's eh, probably going to be an issue for you might be interesting might be the ones that are top of mind but not necessarily the best investments and obviously, other asset classes are shifting. Real estate going through a period where there's a, a correction. It's a rising interest rate environment, which they haven't really felt in many decades. A true rising interest rate environment. Right, when was the last time the mortgage rate doubled in the span of 12 to 18 months? Definitely hasn't happened in the last 40 years. So these are the signs of the times. And I'm here to help you unpack all of this data and help you become a more successful investor by having the right mindset, not falling prey to your emotions and focusing on the facts on the ground. So my toll-free line is open, 888-99-CHART is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. And I've got a lot of material to cover today. One is in regards to the story behind this headline, investment complexity is not your friend. We're going to dig into the fund universe and look at the 
recent offerings, the history of offerings, uh, all different types, and which ones are typically investors successful with and, and not. Okay. So we're going to look at that. Also, commercial real estate. I've been talking about this for a while. Not a place that you really want to be tying yourself to in a big way. And obviously, they're, they're struggling. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Also, for chip makers, they're going to have to choose between the U.S. and China. I think that's going to be an interesting power struggle on that end. And then lastly, we're going to touch a bit on an interesting piece of news, some interesting headlines, but there's also a caveat to it. And that is renewable energy surpassing coal generation last year for the first time. But there's more to that story, which we're going to dig into as well. So that's, what, that's what's on my mind. But ultimately, it's about what is on your mind. The phone lines are open. We're going to hit a voice bank question to play, as well as questions on trailing stops and KRE, the Spiders S&P Regional Banking ETF. So this is uh, an action-packed show uh, on this, uh, this Wednesday. Now let's take a look at the market today. It was modestly positive, right? The S&P was up about 56 points. Ah, maybe not modestly. It's a nice solid update, right? Up about a percent and a quarter. The broad market was down one point, or up 1.44. Small caps were up 1.3. Mid caps did the best, up 1.5%. So continued follow through after kind of the scare over the past couple of weeks in regards to the bank, banking crisis. And as typical, people freak out a little bit more than they should. And the Fed steps in maybe a little bit more than they should, right? And to stabilize things. Uh, but that's what they're going to do. That's, uh, that's, that's in their nature. And hope you've caught on to that, that that is what they're going to do. They're going to paper over the problems, make a few adjustments. And typically, they're, they're pretty good at these crisis problems. Now, managing the economy on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis, I would argue uh, probably not nearly as good. Um, but you know, I kind of think of it as the arsonist putting out the fire. That's what happens a lot with the Fed. Uh, but that's the situation that we're in. That's what you have to accept. You may love it. You may hate it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's what's so interesting. Uh, and something I learned, it took me, it took me a bit, right? We, we all want the world to be the way the world, we think the world should be, right? We all ho- we hope for uh, a certain way the world will act, but that doesn't, nobody cares about that. The market doesn't care what you think or I think. It's going to do what it's going to do. All right. And right now it's uh, rebounding on a more dovish Fed. Now let's head over to our first caller. We're going to go to New York and talk to Ethan looking at Charles Schwab. Hey, Justin. Uh, speaking of um, new banking information coming out about that sector, curious your thoughts on Charles Schwab. It looks like it took a, quite a big leg down in the past uh, 14 days or so. But curious your thoughts on the price currently. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely cheap. We're taking a look at it as well. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've, we're obviously, we use TD Ameritrade as our broker for our clients. And in September, it's going to be, it's going to move over to Schwab. Um, and technically, TD still, you know, it's still under the Schwab uh, umbrella. Um, and, and we have faith in, in Schwab and, and, and the setup there. I don't think they're, they're taking any undue risk. Uh, obviously, they're getting caught up in, in, in this crisis, but they're, their deposits are going to be a lot more stable, 
than what would happen at Silicon Valley Inc., for example. So, um, but one reason we didn't buy Schwab six to 12 months ago was really because of the legislation coming down the pipe when, with regards to free trading, right? Or uh, selling order flow and what that could mean for their business model. And that's actually something that, that uh, would worry me a little bit. Now, at these prices, certainly less of a worry because uh, you have a certain margin of safety there uh, that, that you didn't have before. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's obviously a good company, uh, but something that's outside the purview of what is happening recently with, in regards to the, uh, the, the regional banking crisis, I don't think Schwab has an issue there. But what could potentially be an issue is that payment for order flow to disrupt some of their, their earnings. Um, the risk versus reward down here, so far, based on our research right now, it's pretty good. So I would give Schwab a thumbs up. Now we're going to a quick break. If you're listening via live stream, give us a call now. Or you can call our anytime listener line. As always, it's 888 chart In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need InvestTalk. With total downloads surpassing 50 million, each InvestTalk podcast should be one of your key financial planning and educational tools. InvestTalk is a free download, and hosts Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to provide their unbiased guidance and professional analysis developed from real-time data research and years of investing experience. 24-7, rain or shine, during smooth sailing or on rough weather days, the Invest Talk listener line is open and waiting for your questions. You set the agenda. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, my focus point looks into the story behind this headline. Investing investment complexity is not your friend. And I love this topic because people like to chase the shiny object. And there are thousands, literally thousands of, of shiny objects within the fund space, mutual funds, ETFs. In fact, the Morningstar U.S. Fund Database now has 28,000 different share class funds in 128 different categories. And over the past three years, 139 funds focusing on options trading were launched, 53 on leveraged equity, 39 were on digital assets, 26 trading uh, type of uh, funds, uh, inverse equity funds. 274 sector funds, and 205 thematic funds. So think of the AI robotics mutual fund or ETF, okay? That's one example. And for a lot of people, this can be overwhelming and often leads to worse outcomes for investors. Now, 
Morningstar, they, they themselves, they kind of uh, categorize funds into kind of standalone. These are your targeted funds, for example. You have core funds, which are more of your pure equity, large cap growth funds or mid cap value funds, et cetera. Then you have building block funds. So uh, those would be probably like bond funds of certain types. And then limited. Those are of limited use at all. But nearly half of all mutual funds and ETFs currently land in that limited category. And it means that you should probably not pay much attention to them. And if, if they're in your portfolio, it should be a very small percentage. And there's a ton of evidence that most of these kind of limited funds are prone to being rolled out during times when, or at the wrong time exactly, when there's already a lot of people interested in a particular part of the market where valuations are high. And that means risk levels are very high. And you can just look recently. For example, look at cryptocurrencies. Between 2019 and 2021, the number of fund offerings in the digital space went from two to 30. Two to 30. Just in time for 2022 to be a massive reversal in the crypto space with Bitcoin losing two thirds of its value. And look at technology funds. 70, 70 new technology funds came out between 2019 and 2021. They got the most inflow of any other sector category. Why? Because in the previous couple of years, their cumulative returns were 142% over a three-year period. What happened last year? Technology category dropped 38% on average. So if you take all of all the money that was put into those funds between 2019 and the end of 2022, I'm sure the, the vast majority of investors lost money because they got in chasing those returns. This is a perfect example. More you chase returns, you can chase returns, but you never catch it, right? I love that saying. And so the more complex you, more, com more complexity you add to your portfolio, the less chance you have of actually being successful. And don't be afraid to put things into a pile that you just don't understand. I don't get it. I'm going to go with something I, I understand. And then if it sounds good, too good to be true, that's usually a red flag as well. Okay. So I love this, uh, this topic because it just reminds everybody to focus on the basics and don't chase the shiny object. Now we're going to head to a quick break. Uh, we're going to get to James in New York right after the break. But you probably noticed that Steve and I are very happy about reaching our 50 million podcast download mark. And let's see, tomorrow we're picking our final 10 winners for our 50 for 50 million giveaway. All you have to do to enter is head over to our social platforms and like and tag three friends on our 50 for 50 million post. Once again, that's going to happen tomorrow. So you got to do it tonight. 888 chart give us a call. Now, each time I host the Invest Talk podcast, I have the satisfaction of taking caller questions and then breaking down the often complex dynamics involved. I make them into easier to understand elements. Each question is tackled live without pre-screening, and some topics are more challenging than others. And that's a good thing because it allows every InvestTalk caller to shape the content of the podcast. If you've never called, don't hold back. 
You can leave your Invest Talk questions on the 24 7 anytime listener line at 888 99 Chart. Let's go to Eric in San Jose looking at Activision Blizzard. Uh, yeah, hi, Justin. Really enjoy your show. Um, I've been a holder of uh, Activision Blizzard since before the uh, buyout was announced by mm-hmm. Microvision. I bought it somewhere in the low 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, last week, it took a nice little jump back up to, you know, 84, 85. And uh, I remember you guys saying at one point in time, if you're at 90% of the buyout price, which is 95, that's a good point to get out. But just last week, um, the UK, uh, however, you know, the the, the, the people to, to vote on, on uh, whether it was going yeah, the to regulators. get through or not, the regulators, yes, thank you. Um, they said that uh, there's a good chance that it'll pass by and, and mm-hmm. not be, you know, kind of a monopoly type of thing. Uh-huh. Should I wait out? Because I think the expected transaction is supposed to take place sometime in April or May. Well, the the deal continues to get more and more likely as news like this comes out. Uh, and you're right, last week the UK came out and uh, eased their stance on the objection to the deal. And then after that, Citigroup upgraded the chance of the deal going through from 50% to 70%. And then you have Japanese trade regulator coming out, uh, what was that yesterday, it looks like, uh, saying that it would not hurt competition. And so you're getting a lot of the Western countries on board with uh, this merger overall. Um, it's modestly shocking, um, or sur- I would say shocking, modestly surprising. I thought they were going to be a little tougher on this, but kind of as time goes on, uh, the, the the people within the, the the companies get together and talk enough to the regulators and, and assure them of certain things. Uh, it's more likely to, to get done. Uh, so it's really up to you. I, I, I now with this these recent trends, it seems like it will get done now. So you would be giving up ten percent. I'd probably wait it out till it's a little bit closer since, you know, you're talking April, April's coming up next week. Right. So, um, I would probably wait it out because the, if there was going to be a huge objection, I think by now they would have really done it. Um, so I would probably wait it out and get that full amount. Okay, great. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for the call. 888 chart 888-992-4278 is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. Now let's talk a lot, a little bit about the commercial real estate market and mainly high-end office buildings. And this is all in the face of a lot of remote work as well as rising interest rates that make it more difficult for refinancing. Remember, in the commercial, in the commercial real estate space, there is, but there are balloon payments typically to where you're paying monthly towards a certain percentage of the mortgage. And then once that matures, there's a balloon payment that you have to pay. And usually there's a refinance of that. It's kind of how commercial properties usually work. Now, in general, class A, there's A, B, and C properties. And A properties, generally in the city's you know most prime locations, they were doing the best. They were holding up the best. But recently, they've come under pressure. In the fourth quarter of last year, for the first time, time since 2021, leases fell. And owners of a number of very high-end properties are defaulting 
on those loans. And a lot of that has to do with competition. In downtown LA alone, 28 office buildings have been completed since 2000. So what's happening is those older class A properties, they're not getting the, the rents that they were because they're not as nice and luxurious and modern and have all the amenities, et cetera. So they're suddenly becoming more like B-class properties and they can't charge as much. That means they default on the loans because the loans are uh, based on them being able to charge a certain price. Okay. And then if your building has a lot of type of companies that can work remotely, like finance companies or law firms, for example, you're struggling as well. Now, close to 19 of all high-end office space in Manhattan was available for lease in the fourth quarter of 2022. That's up from 11 and a half in early 2019. So you're getting close to a double since pre-pandemic levels. And once again, real estate is a interest rate sensitive sector. So it's hitting a hit from both sides. Higher cost of financing and an alternative. A lot of investors just in, in real estate in general, uh, whether that's commercial or residential, they're saying, well, before you were getting a three, four, five, six percent cap rate, but now you can sell that property and get 7% in the bond market, 8% with no headaches, without having to deal with tenants, et cetera. So a lot of people are, are looking at that as well. Now, the big issue here is going forward, about around $2.6 trillion of commercial mortgages are set to, to mature between now and 2027. And a lot of those are held by small banks. And so with demand falling, because of work from home and then the triple whammy is most recent, which are the tech companies laying off workers. So if you're in, in, a, in a city where there's a lot of tech companies, they're downsizing in a big, big way as well. So uh, this is a trend I don't think is going to change. And this is probably the weakest part of the real estate market as a whole. All right. Now, next and best stock, the story behind this question. Are you unknowingly subsidizing your colleagues' 401k fees? We're going to dig in that into that tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So. Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E 
com, hackerone.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve or Justin. This is Nick in Napa. I'm calling about ticker symbol KRE, the Spider S&P Regional Banking Fund. And in this rising interest rate time we have and the high inflationary division that we have right now, uh, wondering if this is a good stock to hold or to just sell. Thanks so much. Banking ETF and obviously he's taken a hit since the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Silvergate and what SBNY and a lot of other ones taking it on the chin in regards to raising capital and potentially uh, trying to deal with a capital hole. And so what, I, what I've said consistently since then is that I just don't love the risk versus reward of these smaller banks. Now, will they likely pull out of it? Sure, but many of them will probably continue to struggle, have a flight of deposits above the FDIC limit, which probably should be raised, probably to about a million, if you're thinking about you know, adjusting it for inflation, for example. So I think, I think this is uh, ripe for uh, a rally, but I don't love it. You know, In a slowing environment, we just talked about the commercial real estate market where a lot of these regional banks hold loans for them. Um, so I'm, I'm going to pass. I, I, I think it will do fine. I will, I do, I will say that, but I don't love the risk versus reward. Now, the positive on this is that you're getting that diversity. You're getting the diversity of if one goes under, you're talking about one of dozens within this, uh, this particular fund. So if you don't want to worry about, Hey, I'm going to lose all my money overnight with one regional bank, potentially this could be your broad diversifier. And that may be the best way to go. And frankly, this is probably the best way to play this space. But I still think, you know, if you get another, another one of them going under because of problems, uh, that is going to affect them all, uh, just like it has over the past couple of weeks. So if you're going to play the regional banking ETF or our space, this is a good ETF to do that. Would I do it? Uh, I just think there's better opportunities. Thanks for the call. Now let's keep things moving and play two questions in a row. This one came in earlier from listener in Chicago on 888 chart. Hi, Steve or Justin. This is David from Chicago. Uh, could one of you talk a little bit about trailing stops and specifically how you would go about determining the percentage of a trailing stop. Recently, you've advised several callers to put a tight stop on a position that it appreciated, and I'm wondering what percentage you would consider to be a tight stop. And what would be your calculus for putting what I guess would be a normal trailing stop on a position? Would there be a scenario where you'd put a 15 or 20% trailing stop on a position? Thanks so much for your feedback. I look forward to hearing your response on the podcast. The answer is simply, absolutely. There are many stocks that are very volatile, but they're in an uptrend, right? You're, you're riding them and you know they rally 40% and pull back 20. And you're still well ahead and they continue to do that. So yes, you, you can easily do that. Every company or every ticker symbol, shall you say, if you're talking about ETFs, they have their own level of volatility. You're not going to put the same stock or stop, excuse me, on a, a consumer 
uh, a consumer uh, non-discretionary stock, like a, say a Philip Morris or uh, you know a Procter and Gamble, as you are on a high-flying tech stock. Their volatility is just going to be drastically different. So I wouldn't use a percentage. I would use a moving average. Because typically when a stock is in an uptrend, it's going to hold a particular moving average. But once again, sometimes that's the 20-day moving average. Sometimes that's the 50-day moving average. Sometimes that's the 100-day moving average. And maybe that's on a daily chart. Maybe it's on a weekly chart. So it depends how much leeway you really want to give it. But usually it holds some level of trend above a particular moving average. And as the stock goes up, guess what? That moving average is also going up each day. And frankly, if it's not pointed up, that means it's not an uptrend. So that's the way you want to think about it. I wouldn't use a static percentage. I would focus more on a moving average. And you let that be your guide for your stop. Now, Steve and I have been telling you for a while that we are in a new market regime. The cycles of life are, are ever-changing and ever-moving, and they're a part of our life. I live in Laguna Beach. I look at waves. That is, those cycle of that, those waves are consistent. They might go up a little higher one day, a little lower the next day, but those waves are always coming. That's the same in life in general. We all have our ups and downs. That's the cycle of life. Markets have their own ups and downs. That's the cycle of markets. I'm a very strong believer in these cycles. It's a part of nature. And it can be challenging to understand what part of the cycle you're in and not fall prey with the emotions that these cycles bring. But in the end, our goal here on Invest Talk, I'm sure your goal is to move towards your own version of financial freedom. Whether you call that retirement day or just going and doing whatever you want to do. And the question is, are you on the right track? Are you benefiting from the cycles or are you a victim of the cycles? So what we do at KP Financial is we practice parallel investing. We invest right alongside our clients so that our clients are not falling victim to the cycles. And we operate the same philosophy, which is independent thinking and shared success. So I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve at our company, KPP Financial, where we, where we do free portfolio view assessments almost every day for listeners, current clients, etc. And you can schedule your own over at investtalk.com. The sooner you get in touch with us, the sooner you can have, we can get your portfolio optimized to reach your end goals. Now, next up, <clears throat> next up, I will tackle another listener question here on Invest Talk. So hang on. In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need InvestTalk. InvestTalk is a free download. Your participation makes it unique. Don't forget to call. 
investtalk 888-99-CHART. Hello, this is uh, Romero from the Bay Area. I was calling about the Hershey Company, ticker symbol HSY. It recently hit a uh, 52-week high. Right now, it's currently on my watch list, but I wanted to ask, you know, if and when the time comes and the price starts to drop, what's a good entry point? Or is it even a good entry point now? I assume not because it's pretty high. So, but yeah, I would like your input. Thank you. Yeah, well, we all know what Hershey does. They make chocolate, and they do it very well, and they've done it for a long time. And this stock has been on a strong uptrend since 2000, early 2019. Excuse me, 2018. When it was about $90 per share, now it's at $252 per share. Nice solid dividend yield of 1.6%. Can certainly pay out that dividend. Its payout ratio is only 42%, which I like. And But it is overbought. You're right. It's rallied recently from about 215 or so earlier this year all the way to 252. So uh, it, it's it's overbought. Now, where would a great entry point be? And this is tough because there's there's not a quite a pivot yet. So I can't really, it's hard to give like a, a strong uh, support level. Uh, back down around 215, that is the first big support level. I would I will say that. Now, is it cheap there? It's not really. You know, it's a, about a 23 times enterprise value to EBITDA, which is the most expensive it has ever been. Ever. Ever. And even if it gets back down to that, 215 level, it's still near levels that it's uh, highest it's ever been. So uh, definitely one to keep on your watch list. I wouldn't be stoked to be jumping on it here. Trading at about 25 times future earnings typically is a, a slow grower. And I think you've had a recent jump in earnings, uh, but I don't see that being sustainable. So I'd keep on your watch list, but I would need this well below $200 per share. Uh, to really be interested. Maybe 190 is where I'd start to think about it. Uh, next big support would be around 172, and that would be where I'd be comfortable buying. Right. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch a bit on a on the chips market and an underappreciated bill that came through Congress last year was the Chips Act. And there's some new, a new proposed rule by the Biden administration detailing restrictions chip companies would face in China and other countries if they accepted the taxpayer funds to help build out chip manufacturing here in the U.S. And so these chip companies are going to have to make a decision. Do they want to expand here in the U.S. or do they want to expand in China? Because basically, if they want to take U.S. tax dollars, they can't do that and expand in China. They have to do one or the other. And this would be very onerous for a lot of large Eastern Asian co uh, companies like Samsung and SK Hynix from South Korea, both of them. Those are the world's two top memory chip makers. Also Taiwan Semiconductor, that's the world's largest chip manuf chip maker. And this is interesting to me because remember TSMC was getting a big was getting a big rally just recently and then Warren Buffett uh, had had bought into it. Uh where is this? I'm trying to 
bring up the stock there, TSM. And it's kind of stalled since. And recently, it came out that Warren Buffett sold, sold his stake soon after he bought it. And that was perplexing to me because he doesn't typically do that. And I have a strong suspicion this is probably why. So, oh, TSMC, which was going to build a a factory in, in Arizona, I still think they are. Now they have to decide. Do they want to expand in China or do they want to expand here? And so Samsung is building a $17 billion plant in Tyler, Taylor, Texas. And they're thinking about spending $200 billion overall in Texas. TSMC is planning to build a $40 billion complex in Arizona. Now, this new proposed rule, remember, this is just a proposal. It's going to go through comment and review, and the the, the rules will come out this summer. But it basically prevents them from spending over $100,000 in material expansion in China or increase their capacity by more than 5%. And this is basically industrial policy that's trying to steer these semiconductor companies in one singular direction to choose a side it would also limit them from doing joint r d research and development with countries like china so not only can they not build out chip capacity but they can't do joint r d partnerships with these countries either And these kind, a lot of these companies have extensive facilities in China. Samsung has a flash memory plant in central Chinese city of Xi'an. SK Hynix has a DRAM memory production facility in Wuji. And Intel has one in Dalian that was recently built. So it's going to be very interesting to see this trend. And this is where we talk about the shifts in geopolitics are going to really play into how the chip industry in general is going to perform over the next decade. And I know it's not fun. It's not fun to talk about geopolitics. It can be stressful and it's very difficult. It's a lot more difficult than looking at numbers on a screen. But in a new multipolar world where Eastern and Western powers are aligning. And that means if you have significant exposure to the Chinese market, Chinese production, how much is that going to impact your business? Near term, medium term, long term. That's something you really have to think about. And what companies will benefit? What companies were hurt by this shift to exporting around the world, but now will will benefit? This is where the opportunities lie. And that's why I say it's a different playbook. Deglobalization is different. And you need to adjust.
Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. It's not about getting a tip from your brother, your cousin, or your neighbor. It's not about reading the headlines on your favorite news site or scanning Reddit boards. It's about aligning your investment philosophy with your risk tolerance levels and your goals to achieve your own version of financial freedom, like I said. So our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and unbiased guidance. You've come to the right place. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Don in San Jose. He wants to talk about semiconductors. Hey, Justin. Uh, great show as ever. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you a question regarding that CHIP Act that you started uh, earlier. Uh-huh. Sorry. Go for it. Yeah. So, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, um, you can say that maybe we 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 send everything overseas mm-hmm. uh, in the semiconductor industry. Now, do you really see that we can really bring it back? Where are we going to get the people to work on these? I mean, other than Silicon Valley, a few other places where there's predominantly a lot of immigrants there, I just don't see we can really do this. Uh, what's your take on this? Well, we we have the manpower. It's just going to take the the training uh, to do so. Um, and I don't think it's just going to be here in the U.S. I think it's uh, going to be Mexico as well. I think there's uh, the manpower there uh, there too. Um, so, you know, it, it does take a different skill set, but it's something that where, uh, you know, they say where they build it, they will come, right? If people need jobs. They're going to they're gonna figure out a, a way to, to train themselves, you know, just as there's a lot of uh, programmers, right? And uh, the programming... The programming skill it typically isn't taught in college. Uh, it's typically through some sort of third-party uh, training uh, program. And I think you'll see something similar, that a lot of these semiconductor companies will have training programs themselves to bring people in and, and train them on whatever they, they need them to do. Um, so will there be challenges? Absolutely, there will be challenges. It's not like it's a plug-and-play thing and it's not going to happen overnight. It's probably going to take a decade. But... Clearly, this is a new a new era of government policy. It's industrial policy, which we haven't had for a long period of time. Both the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act are uh, the first stabs at industrial policy. Now, whether you think that they are going to be effective or not is really up to debate, and, and, and time will tell. But uh, it's clearly a trend that that. Is, is probably not changing. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see what these chip companies do uh, and, and the challenges that they do have, over, have to overcome, which is um, the manpower. You're correct. But it, I don't think it's a, a challenge that is not overcomable. <laughs> I think they will figure it out. Yeah, I live in the Bay Area. I'm a little bit biased, but I, I, hope, uh, I hope so. I'm crossing my fingers. 
I would love to see all this company coming back. Um, yeah. But I, I do. That's right. It's a huge hurdle. I mean. Yeah. Well, huge. I don't. I, I mean, just look at where they're building them there in, in Arizona and in Ohio and uh, they didn't. They're build. They're spending billions and billions of dollars. They've done the feasibility studies, the work, figuring out work, work power uh, that they're going to need, manpower, excuse me, uh, that they're going to need to make this happen. It's not something they haven't planned on. So they're not shooting, uh, shooting the dark here. They figured this out and in, in what their uh, plan is to staff these uh, facilities. Uh, and I think they will. Uh, but uh, time will tell how fast they can do it. You know, can they really build out the capacity to replace what's happening overseas uh, over the next decade? I think that's going to be maybe a bigger challenge. I think the initial handful uh, of moves here in the U.S. probably won't be too difficult because they'll find the places that have the manpower. Uh, but will it be something that they can build, you know, dozens and dozens of these facilities all across the country? I think that's TBD. Maybe, once again, it has to go to Mexico because you need more young people and, and uh, cheaper workforce or whatever. Uh, but clearly, this is a trend that's not shifting. Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's focus uh, on a uh, headline, which is that renewables, renewables surpass coal power generation for the first time in 2022. And what's interesting here is that coal was the most used fuel for Americans until 2016 when natural gas passed it. And now renewables have passed it. So natural gas and renewables are the two uh, most used forms of, of energy and coal is almost even with nuclear unfortunately nuclear has been flat for 20 years plus uh, hopefully that'll go up soon uh, but uh, coal is on the climb but so is natural gas so it's not like we're getting rid of fossil fuels at all uh, it's mainly been replaced with natural gas and renewables and kind of split evenly between the two well that about does it i'm justin klein this completes another invest talk program steve peasley and i thank you and remember to follow us and subscribe uh, and download anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And then follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And remember to like and tag three friends on our 50 for 50 million posts. And you might win an annual subscription to the KPP Premium Newsletter. This is your last chance. We're going to pick our last 10 tomorrow. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial.